Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. This evening, we're in the book of Ecclesiastes. Continuing our sermon series there, we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Open your Bible to the center, and you're in the book of Psalms. And when you hang a right from there, you'll be in the Song of Solomon, and then hang a right again, you're in Ecclesiastes. If you get to Isaiah, you've went too far. Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Five words to summarize tonight's main point is spite death by enjoying life. So my encouragement is that we would spite death by enjoying life. We're going to look at that in three different ways. We're going to look at it first with how he lays it out is that death sucks and there's no other way to look at that. The second is that life is better. He kind of takes us through phases or steps. Step one, death sucks. Step two, life is better. Step three is to spite death by enjoying life. Let's pray and we'll dive in. Jesus, you reign. You've won. You are the king who's seated on your throne. We're not left with a battle that's left up to us to fight or reign victorious because you have won. We have the full approval and acceptance from God in you. And I pray that we're reminded of that uh, approval tonight. I I pray that we're reminded even in the midst of a, a change and transition that ultimately, Jesus, that you are the shepherd and the pastor of this church. You are way out in front. You are the king who's in control, who's sovereign, who knows everything, and you have the perfect plan for us. We thank you that we're in a city where it's difficult to find a place for a church to meet because it seems like that's the right place to be. I pray that the gospel would go out and it would move and it would move beyond uh, these walls. It would move throughout our city, that it would transform our hearts and lives starting tonight and that we'd be moved and compelled to share the message with others. Speak to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I think it's important to say this because as we dive into Ecclesiastes and we're coming to an end, last time I preached chapter 7, Ronnie preached last week, last time in chapter 7, it was on death. And it's like we open up tonight, chapter 9, the heading, death, comes to all. And it's like, man, a lot of death. A lot of death keeps coming. And it seems like the preacher the voice who's in this piece of wisdom literature, we believe is Solomon. And so Solomon seems to keep bringing up death. Why? In some sense, he's like the one guy at the party you avoid because he's always so negative, right? And or he always talks about something that's wrong with him and something that's going on in his life. And he's kind of like the Eeyore. And, and, and so you might start to feel like, man, like Solomon's, a lot. <laughs> like just constant death. Is he like super emo or depressed or what's going on? Because there's a lot of death talk. But I think what he actually is, he's a, he, he's a phenomenal preacher and a phenomenal pastor. Because the reality is, is that we're super thick. And it's really hard for us to, to, to remember things and get things. And we have to be told over and over and over and over again about this. I know this from being married that my wife continues to have to tell me things over and over and over again. And and it's not that I don't love her in, in, in uh, ways that she would love to be loved. It's just that I forget. And so I'm reminded and reminded and reminded. And so I think it's the same thing. Ultimately, 
We should come back to a church each week that preaches the gospel, that puts that out in front of us, that reminds us of that because we forget the gospel. We hear it Sunday, we forget it on Monday. We, believe, we, we hear that we're saved by grace through faith, not our works, and then Monday we start trying to work to earn our salvation. So I believe that he's trying to, to, to get this across. And the reason why I believe that he's trying to do that is because we've talked about death so much, but there are many people in here who've just tried to avoid that topic or avoid hearing it. And what he's trying to say is that you actually don't live life till, to its fullest unless you understand the outcome. So actually, the, the, the people that lived the best are the people that know that they're dying. I've made jokes, and they're, they're partial jokes, but there's some truth to this. Ronnie said that he likes Ecclesiastes because the preacher is cynical and uh, sarcastic. I like Ecclesiastes because I like country music, and I think it's somewhat like country music. Sorry if I ruined Ecclesiastes for some of you guys with that statement, but here's what I mean. I've talked to people commonly who, uh, who started listening to country music, and I said, when did you listen to country music? And they said, when I went through something rough in my life, when I went through a bad season, just hearing about all the pain and all the stuff, so, somehow I connected to that. And I think what he's trying to say is this, is if you've ever met someone who just got the news or the word that they only have a short time left to live, their lens and their perspective and the way they live their life is drastically different. It is. I'm going to read the lyrics of this song. It goes like this. It said, I was in my early 40s with a lot of life before me, and a moment came that stopped me on a dime. I spent most of the next days looking at x-rays and talking about sweet time. I asked him when it sank in that this might be the real end. How did it hit you when you got that kind of news? Man, what'd you do? He said, I went skydiving. I went Rocky Mountain climbing. I went 2.7 seconds on a bull named Fu Manchu. Said this, I love deeper. I spoke sweeter. I gave forgiveness I've been denying. And he said, someday I hope you get the chance to live like you were dying. He said, I was finally the husband that most of the time I wasn't. And I became a friend that most would like to have. And then he says this, and all of a sudden going fishing wasn't such an imposition. I went three times that year, I lost my dad. I think when you understand what the outcome is for all of us, for everyone in this room, death shows no partiality, then it impacts and changes the way that you live your life. And I believe that's what the preacher and what the author is trying to do here. Let's dive in and take a look at it. Let's look at this first section, call it step one, phase one, where, where, where he's trying to tell us that first death, death is a reality that sucks really bad. Chapter nine, verse one. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and to him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. What's going on? The author here is brilliant. He's actually stirring up our emotions. He's pulling us in. But I would also title this section right here in these first two verses, Don't Fall For It. Because he's, 
He's getting us going. He's, if you're in here and you're not a believer, you're agnostic or you're atheist or you're wrestling with Christianity or looking or you're in here or you're a devout Christian, he's actually speaking to everyone in this room because he's saying that, look, I know something that you're struggling with. Why does death happen to some people when they're too young? Why does it happen over here to the righteous, to the unrighteous? Why is this? He's pulling at us. What he's doing is he's actually setting a bait. He's setting the bait. Both the atheist and the theist both get mad at God. I know this. The theist gets mad at God because those that believe in God, because they say this. I look at the life, and I know because I've talked to people. I've talked to friends who have struggled. Even a dear friend, who uh, he and uh, their wife have struggled to get pregnant. And he has told me, he has said, I don't understand. Rick, my wife is an awesome woman. Why so many drug dealers and everyone else can get pregnant and we can't? Explain that to me. I also know that, that atheists have this deep sense of justice. You can even look at Christopher Hitchens' books and even the, the titles of the chapters. He's telling you what's wrong and what's evil in, in the sense of way that God would act. But know this, as soon as you say that there's injustice on God's part, you're admitting that there's good and evil in the world. And you have to know this. C.S. Lewis, the thing that actually drove him to God was his problem with God over evil and suffering. Because he said that, I, I sense that, that, that things are unjust and it bothers me that there's injustice in the world, but where did my standard for justice come from? And in a sense, why do I believe that it's bad that unjust things happen to good people? I also think that most atheists I know actually believe or live up to a moral standard. What I'm not saying, and don't hear me say this, is that atheists aren't moral people. I would say that a lot of atheists are very moral people and in a lot of ways more moral than Christian people. But what he's saying is actually pulling everyone into the, to the conversation at the same time. He's pulling everyone into a sermon. He's getting every ear in the room to perk up because he's saying something that everyone has thought through. What I love is this, is that God allowed this to be in his word thousands of years before a lot of the uh, apologetic arguments that are going on, going on today. God is not insecure about man wrestling with these thoughts or thinking these sorts of things. In fact, what does God know? That at the end of the day, if you wrestle with these things, then what you'll have to know is that as you wrestle with these things, honestly, like C.S. Lewis, they're probably going to drive you and take you to God, who has a standard for what is good. You know that where your justice actually comes from is from God. And you know that as, as you see atheists, no one really lives in, uh, consistently with what they believe because if you saw a kid who worked like crazy, who was poor and he worked like crazy just to get enough money to buy uh, an ice cream cone off the ice cream truck because he watched all the other kids go and get one every day. And you watched some guy, as soon as he got his ice cream cone, he was so happy and you watched a guy go up to him and just pluck the ice cream cone out, out of his hand and start eating it. Atheist, theist, you name it. Instant anger, instant frustration. You don't know an atheist in the world that goes, yeah, only the strong survive. No one's going to say that. We have a deep sense of justice, all of us. And so he's pulling us into that deep sense of justice that all of us have. But what he's doing, like I said, is he's setting the bait. Because he's forgetting, because, I, I'm sorry, we forget what's foundational. 
What's fundamental is that when we talk about evil, our natural tendency is to go, evil's out there. Or this must be evil, what God is doing. But he lures you in. Even in verse 3, read this. He's still luring at the first part of this, so the second half of verse 3. This is an evil, and all that is done under the sun, this, this way that death takes people, that the same event happens to all. Notice here, don't take the bait. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live and after they go to the dead. What's he saying? You get so worked up about evil and injustice in this, but what you're forgetting is that the evil in the world is not out there, that every man has evilness or has evil that lives inside of us. The word for madness is blindness. What he's saying is what Paul says, says elsewhere. There's no one who does good, no, not one. Saying that evil is not this problem that exists out, out inside of the world. The problem is, is that we're, the evil exists inside of us. We could take a test to say, I don't know, I don't like that. I don't like when we talk about sin. I don't like when we talk about evil. But the reality is this, is if we just took a simple test and said, uh, how many of you have never told a lie? I think everyone would go, yeah, I've failed that one. And if you didn't, then you failed at lying on that test. He's pulling you in to see something. What is he pulling you in to see? It's this. It's death really does suck and it stinks. And in fact, he, he, he even, if you can jump ahead with me, he just explains this in another way, starting in verse 11. But he says, again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the in intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them, saying the same thing in a different way. Death is hard. He's also not, pay attention here, he's also not just being philosophical. He's not just being a butcher who's chopping off your logical arguments and stuff like that. He's actually being, being very pastoral, like a surgeon. He, he, he's, in a sense, saying this, I know, because I've wrestled with this, how hard it is. To my friend, he would say, I know how hard it is to see those things. When you watch a child die young of cancer, I know how hard it is to see that. When you see people die youthful with so many years left in them, I know how hard it is to see that. But know this, before you blame God, know and understand what death is. It's a daily and constant reminder of the way the world was never intended to be. In fact, if we look at God's commands, look at the Ten Commandments. What does God say? Worship God. That's, that's a good one. And look, look at the other commands God gives. He's rest. Rest on the Sabbath day. We would say rest is a really good thing. And then so are the other laws that God lays out for us. They're not evil. Don't steal. That's a good thing. Don't covet your neighbor's wife. We would say that's a good thing. Don't bear false witness. Don't commit adultery. All good things. The problem is, is that we don't keep the commands that God gave that are really good. And that's what happened at the fall of man is that God never created us for death. Listen to this. The reason why you and I and most people typically don't long for death is because we were never created for it. It is, it is the opposite of who God is. 
God is life. God is eternal. He created us in his image. So no, we don't long for death because death is not what we were created for. And so he's saying that I know this. I know it's hard to see these things. I know that it sucks. But now he's taking us into step two. And he's, and he's just kind of waiting in. He's not just getting right on in, but he's saying this now, that life is better. Just life in general, that, that to be alive is actually better. He's making a shift. Let's look at it. Verse four. But he who is joined with the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward for the memory of them is forgotten. What's he saying? Being alive is still better than being dead. Being alive is still better than nothing. Dogs back then were not thought of like they are in our culture now. They're not praise and worship. So it was not a good thing to be a living dog. It's actually really bad. I can't think of a modern day animal, so we'll just go with a cow. But he's saying that it's better to be like a cow than it is to be a dead lion, an alive cow than a dead lion. That it's still better to be alive than it is to be dead. Why? Because when you're dead, there is nothing. What does he mean by that? He explains in verse 6. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. What's he saying? Your most intense emotions of love, of anger, of frustration, of all those things, we might not like those things. And we might not like the way they come up in our lives or other people's lives. And it's not a good thing to lash out with impulsive anger, but all these things that actually when, they, when you do see them and they're prevalent in your life, it's because you're actually alive. So he's saying with, with the most intense emotions uh, that you have, at least what it is showing you is that you're alive. And when you're dead, guess what? Whatever bitterness or frustration or anger or rage or love or all these things that you've had, they will go and they will pass. He's saying that life is better. Another way to think of this is this, is that life is a gift for every person in this room and every person on this world. And every day that God gives is a gift from God. But all of us are on a time clock and God can call time at any moment. And so he's transitioning us to saying that it's, look, it's not, look how grand life is or how to live life at this point. He's just trying to to show you and, and wade in to say, it's still better to be alive than it is to be dead. But he's taking us into what it actually looks like now to enjoy life. Look at verse seven. He starts with a command. Jesus starts with a command, the same command in Matthew 28, go and make disciples there. He's here. He says, go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart for God has already approved what you do. The preacher's telling us something. Death is hard. Life is better. But the best way that you can live your life here on this earth is despite death by actually enjoying it. Despite it, by actually enjoying it. He starts off here and, 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 and he wades through this first section, nine through one through six, kind of, kind of taking us through the different emotions of what's going on, in, uh, on inside of us, what we feel, what we experience, showing us life is better. But now he's actually saying the best way that you can actually live your life 
like you were dying, is to spite death by enjoying it. Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart for God has already approved what you do. This reminds me of what Augustine said. Augustine said, love God and live as you will or love God and do as you will. And some people meant, th- uh, thought that meant like it was a carte blanche for just do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. But that's not what it meant. What he was saying is that when you actually truly know uh, of how much God loves you, and when you love God so much, then your heart is aligned to go and do God's will. And what he's saying here is don't abuse stuff, but he's saying you can actually go. It's a command to go and eat bread with joy. And drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. It's, it's what we should do. I think this is a big statement, but I believe that Christians are the ones who can truly enjoy God's gift, God's gifts on this earth. I believe that Christians are the, one, the ones that can actually enjoy it. And so if you're here and you're not a Christian, let me explain that. Is that as a Christian, you don't worship the gifts of wine, of bread, or of anything else God has given and you don't draw your sense of worth from them. So as a Christian, you're not getting your ultimate meaning from the gifts of God. And since you don't worship them and get your ultimate meaning from them, then if you lose that gift, you haven't lost everything because you have everything in God. You have everything in Christ. And so if you have the everything in them, then you're not squeezing the life out of these precious gifts that God gives. You're actually able to worship God and just see the gifts as simply what they are. They're gifts that we can enjoy for a season in life, but they do not give me my everything. They do not give me my worth. If I lose them, I have not lost everything. He's also not saying here that it's not universalism. It's not everyone. God approves of everyone and everything that everyone does. And it doesn't matter how people live, but he's saying that those that actually have a grateful heart, knowing who the gift giver is, are actually the ones that God is approving of because you recognize who's given the gift. You know that Jesus ate and drank his way through a lot of the Gospels. Read Luke 10. It's like, like 10 meals that Jesus is having with people. Do you know that Jesus knew his entire life that what waited for him is one of the most excruciating ways that a human can die? How in the world could you go through life with such enjoyment knowing what was waiting for you at the end? It's because of this. in a deepest sense, in a way that we will never experience. He knew to the very depths and the core of who he was that he had God's full love and approval and acceptance. Fully. And I believe that approval is tied to us actually being able to enjoy life, to us spiting death, when we know deep, deep down inside of us that God approves us. And here's the thing, is Jesus had God's approval. But on the cross, what happened? Everything that God disapproves of, Jesus took on and became. And everything that God approves of, Jesus gave to those that put their faith and trust in him. So Jesus on the cross takes all that God disapproves of, and he says, here's all that God approves of. And so I would ask this question, do you believe that Jesus Christ had God's full approval in his life and the way that he lived his life? Absolutely. Like God, Jesus had God's absolute full acceptance and approval. And so the question goes back to you, then in Christ, putting your faith in him, 
Do you believe that God has the same approval for you that he has for Christ? Do you believe that the same amount of righteousness that Christ lived in his life, the same amount of obedience and perfection that he gave to you? Yes. God doesn't have a partial approval of you. The same approval that he had for his son, he now has for you because his son has given you everything that he had, full approval from God. And as people who understand justice, we would say this, back to verse three, is that what's truly evil is an innocent, truly innocent person dying a really wicked death. The true evil that happened, happened to Christ on the cross. He goes on to say in verse eight, let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. We can't read these verses without uh, picturing the gospel, without understanding the gospel First, very practically saying that, look, if you're going to live your life and spite death by enjoying it, then actually take care of yourself. (laughs) Take a bath. Wash your clothes. It's it's very practically what he's saying is is that uh, people would sit around and, 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 and mourn and grieve and cover themselves with ashes. So he's saying... Put on clothes, not just clothes, but white clothes. Let oil not be lacking on your head. To our fellow Eugenians, deodorant is not satanic. It's a gift. Put it on, take care of yourself. Like that's not a bad thing to do. That's what he's saying. But ultimately what he's saying here is this. In Revelation 19.11, don't turn there. uh, I'll just read it. We have a picture of what's actually happening. Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse, the one sitting on it called faithful and true and righteousness. He judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And his name is written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Even as Jesus returns, he is still symbolized by a robe dipped in blood. What are the saints wearing? He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood in the name by which he is called the word of God and the armies of heaven. That would be the child, the children of God arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. We're following him on white horses. What he has, he gives to us. His righteousness. Look at verse nine. Enjoy life with the wife you love all the days of your vain life. I love that. That he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Now he says another command. Enjoy life with your wife. Another, another way of putting it is enjoy life with community, enjoy life with people, spite death by actually enjoying life. And I would say the way that you can actually truly enjoy life is to know that you have God's full approval and acceptance in Christ. I met with someone recently and they were exhausted. And I talked to them as they shared about their life and what's going on, but at the core of their exhaustion and their inability to enjoy life was a person who was exhausting themselves trying to earn God's approval. And I said that it's almost the picture that I got was this, is when they entered heaven, they, they would, it, it's almost as if they would collapse in the arms of God and God would tell them, I, I have, I approved 
I approve. But what you've missed is my approval was never about what you could do, but what my son did on your behalf. The word we use for gospel, good news, euangelion is the Greek. It's actually, it was a military phrase. And so what would happen is a writer would be sent, uh, uh, or an army would be sent outside of the town, outside of the city, and they would go fight a war. And they would send a writer back, and he would come back into town with a message. Everything was writing on this message. What, what you were doing in town, the way you were living, the way you were eating, the way you were sleeping, you have to understand, if your town and your city is about to be attacked by the enemy, to be ransacked, to be overturned, it affects the way you live your life. But if the writer came back saying this, Good news, good news, good message, good message. The war has been fought and we are victorious. Our city has won. Then as a people, you can rest. You can enjoy life. You can eat a meal. You can drink your wine with a merry heart. You can eat your bread with joy as he says here. You can enjoy your wife. You can live life. I don't think it's a comprehensive list. I think even one scholar who says this helps summarize it even more is ride a bike, see the Grand Canyon, go to the theater, learn to make music, visit the sick, care for the dying, cook a meal, feed the hungry, watch a film, read a book, laugh with some friends until it makes you cry, play football, run a marathon, snorkel in the ocean, listen to Mozart, ring your parents, write a letter, play with your kids, spend your money, learn a language, plan a church, start a school, speak about Christ, travel somewhere you've never been, adopt a child, give your fortune, and then some. Shape someone else's life by laying down your own. What is he saying? The best way you can spite the enemy of death is to actually enjoy life. The greatest enemies we have as Christians is death and Satan. And if Christ has conquered both of them, then the best way we can spy them is to enjoy it. I love giving my kids gifts, but I love to watch them play with the gifts and enjoy them. I love it. And one of the best ways that we can spite Satan, that we can spite death, is that we can actually enjoy life. And what we do is we actually show the enemy what we believe. We, show, we actually show the enemy that Christ reigns through our grateful response of how we're enjoying our life. The worst thing the enemy could see is a bunch of Christians enjoying the gifts and the life God has given them. And so we actually, by doing that, spite death and we spite the enemy by enjoying life. I'll close with this story because it's great. Martin Luther married a woman named Catherine Von Bora. Uh, von Bora. She, uh, he, he was 41, she was 25. Just give you just a quick snapshot. Uh, they, they both grew up in the monastic lifestyle and so they were both celibate. Uh, as we know, Martin Luther being someone who started the Protestant Reformation, started to write about the gift that actually marriage is from God and what had been taken away as something that could be enjoyed and that by not being married, it was making you a more holy person. So he was fighting against this. And so uh, his wife-to-be actually read some of the uh, literature that he was putting out. And then they came up with a, uh, um, or he came up with a, we'll all just say it's probably the most, or it's probably the least romantic phrase ever, is that he married his wife despite the devil. That's what he said. He didn't want to be married. He actually said, he said, good God, they will never thrust a wife on me. 
because I daily because <laughs> because I daily expect the death decreed to a heretic. He actually says I never I never loved Catherine for the nice expected her of being proud as she is, but God willed me to take pity on the poor abandoned girl. Because listen to this, does this give any hope to a marriage? He's not kidding when he said they, they, in a sense, they both entered in to spite the devil. Throughout their life, he battled with depression. Six children lost his daughter at 13 months and lost his other daughter at 13 years of age, died in his arms. These are the words that he said about his uh, wife at the end of his life. Years later, these are the titles that I called my wife, Lord Katie. He also referred to her as his dear rib. Sir Katie, the Empress, my true love, my sweetheart, and a gift of God. In a romantic statement that perhaps only a, theologian, a theologian's wife could truly appreciate, Martin referred to his favorite book of the Bible, Galatians, as my Catherine von Bora. He's a man who battled with depression. So sometimes he would come home so, so depressed, and one time she met him at the door. I love this story. And she was wearing all black and just had just this real just depressed look on her face. And, and he goes, what are you doing? Are you on a funeral? And she goes, no, but the great Martin Luther is living life like God is dead. And so I thought that I would join him in, in, in his act. What happened? Is they actually started to enjoy life in a sense. They started off to spite the enemy and that's in a sense what they continued to do. But what they actually did is they started to actually enjoy life and the gifts God had given. 